The desire of the believer's heart is certainly that all glory would go and be for Christ. And I hope today that that's what you can say is the desire of your heart is that all glory should be and will be to Him. I'm turning this morning to Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, and I want to take for our introduction this morning to this chapter, just verse number 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. We notice that expression that Christ glorified not himself. Uh, We just finished singing, All glory be to Christ. And yet, here we see the writer of Hebrews declare very plainly and very clearly that Christ does not nor did not glorify himself. He did not do something outside of the realm of what he was supposed to do. Uh, We notice that in chapter number 4, at the end of verses, in verses 14 and 15, about seeing then we have this great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was with all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He glorified not himself in this office of the high priest. We saw that the writer at the end of chapter 4 points us to the reality that we can come boldly to this throne of grace in a time of need, that we will find mercy. And again, we notice that it is Jesus Christ himself who is the great high priest. Chapter number 5 primarily deals with the Christ as the great high priest. Uh, The writer in this particular chapter, I'm really going to break this up into four different headings this morning. Uh, The first heading that will look at verses 1 through 3 deals with the nature of the priestly office. What was the nature of this priestly office? What did it look like? Uh, How was it cared for? Uh, How was it, uh, how did it function? Uh, The second heading, uh, verses 4 through 6, is the proper call to this priestly office. Uh, No priest was able to call themselves to this office. There had to be a call from God. The third heading, verses 7 through 9, deals with the required qualifications for the priestly work. What qualified that priest to the work in which they were called to? And then fourthly, verses 6 and 7, And then verses 10 through 14 deal with the peculiar order of the priesthood of Christ. Really, we have a contrast and a comparison between the priesthood of humanity, the office occupied by man, and the office occupied by God. But I want us to continue to think about that thought, that Christ, the great high priest, glorified not himself. Well, let's look at this first heading, the nature of the priestly office, and this is in verses 1 through 3. The writer tells us every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, 
that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity, and by reason hereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Now the writer is dealing primarily with the nature of the normal human high priest. Everyone that was a high priest under the law was a man. Uh, every person was a common man. There was nothing special about him. Uh, he was not uh, more sinless than someone else. Exodus 28 verse 1 tells us that the high priest was taken from among them. He was taken out of the people in which he was going to provide that priestly office to. He was not a man who came from somewhere else. He was taken from among them. That priest was ordained and was given this title or this office and he would be anointed with oil. There would oil be applied to him that he would be a representative of the things pertaining to God. That's what the writer means here in verse 1 about ordained for men and things pertaining to God. He would be the one who would represent them. He would be in a way a go-between between themselves and a holy God. This priest would preside over them in the name of God. He would not just do this on his own uh, calling. He wouldn't just do this on his own philosophies, but yet he would represent them and preside over them in the name of God. The priest was also responsible to stand in their stead. Uh, he would appear before God in their place. Uh, that was the role of this priest. He would take the offerings, the sacrifices, and the gifts that were given. He would be the one that would present those to God before he would give them. And as he would give them, he would bless them. He would bless those things as they were being given to God. So in a sense, the high priest is a stand between. He stands between a holy God and sinful man. Now Christ, we understand, is our great high priest. We realize today that you and I cannot get to the throne of God. We cannot get to the Father through any other priest other than Jesus Christ. The same was true in the priesthood then. That human priest was the only way the people could get to God. They could not offer the sacrifices themselves. They had to go through the priest. Those people in those days should not expect anything from God that was not given to the priest who represented them before God. So this high priest, we see, was given the responsibility of all things pertaining to God. We see already that this high priest was a common man. He was a man who sinned. He was a man who had sinful desires. He was a man who had sinful lust. He was a man who sometimes became slave to his own sinful passions. Yet it says in our Bible here that he could have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. Think about this for a moment. Here's this sinful high priest who still was able to have compassion over the people in which he was presided. Why? Because he could relate to what they were dealing with. He knew sin. He knew what it was to have sinful passions. And yet, he was also, even though he sympathized with the people in their ignorance and in their transgressions, he too was a sinner. Christ, our Lord, 
became a man, and he knew no sin. He is our great high priest, and our great high priest, not only did he become a man, but he knows our frame. He knows what we are. He can have compassion on the ignorant. He can uh, understand what it is to be in the place of those that are out of the way. But this high priest in the Old Testament was much different than our great high priest. When the high priest would bring in specifically the sin offering, the sin offering that was being brought for the atonement of the people, he was obligated, and we've mentioned this before, he was obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sin first. That high priest needed mercy as well. Even though he was the representative ordained by God, called by God, as we'll see in just a moment, he still had to offer his own sacrifice. In another way, Christ was different from the Old Testament priest in that he had no sin. Hebrews 7.27 tells us about Christ who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Christ never made an atonement for his own sin. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, He did not go to the cross to make an atonement for His own sin and the people's. He only went to make an atonement for the people's sins. The commentator Matthew Poole says this, a sinner can undertake to manage nothing towards God immediately or by himself, but with a mediating priest who must know God's mind and perform it. And it was infinite mercy for God to institute such a help to sinners. Man could do nothing to get mercy from God apart from the great high priest from Jesus Christ. That is the nature of the priestly office. Verses 4 through 6, the heading is the proper call to this priestly office. How did a high priest become a high priest? Uh, was this some kind of an advancement? Was this some type of a, uh, a rush to power? Verses 4 through 6 tell us what the proper call was. And no man, verse 4, taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So important for us to understand. The office of high priest, especially in the Old Testament, was an office of highest honor because of the work that individual was being called to do. But there was a proper way in which this call had to happen. A man could not set himself up as a priest. A man could not say, I think I'll run for the office of high priest. There was not an election. There was not a vote. There was not, here's three candidates for high priest. You choose the one that's best for you or represents your interest the best. He was chosen directly by God. He was chosen, as we looked in verses 1 through 3, to represent the people before God. So, scripturally, no man can take this office except the one that was appointed and ordained of God. The writer of Hebrews gives us an example with Aaron. Aaron did not place himself into that position of high priest. He was appointed and he was ordained of God. Now that's the context that leads us into verse number five. So also... In the same manner in which Aaron did not call himself into the priesthood, Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. In other words, even Christ did not take this high calling office by himself or unto himself. He did not receive it from men. He was not voted into it. He did not inherit it. 
but yet here's how he was appointed. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten me. God the Father appointed the Son unto this office of great high priest. Christ did not glorify himself. Now, when you and I sang that hymn that's such to a familiar tune, and I hope now when you hear that tune in a few days on December 31st, I hope you sing all glory be to Christ now, because it is so it's beautiful to think about. I hope you can never hear the old version the same anymore. I hope that all glory is to Christ. But understand something, that even Christ himself did not take the glory for himself. He did not do this in a manner in order that he is acting out of his character, or acting out of what God in the eternity past they had already determined to do. Thou art my son. He was made our high priest. The Father appointed him to the office, anointed him with, the Bible says, the oil of gladness above everyone else, and sent him to execute it. We see made reference to this back in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 54. John 8, 54, in one of the many conversations that uh, Jesus was having with the Pharisees. And he even makes reference to his own honor. He makes reference to his own glory. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God, yet ye have not known him. But I know him, and if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And of course, the narrative goes on. The Jews begin to question, saying, you're not 50 years old, and you claim to have seen Abraham. And Jesus makes that startling statement in verse 58. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews, of course, responded with open arms and says, we accept you. No, they did the opposite. They picked up stones and they wanted to kill him. Because Jesus had made a claim of divinity. But yet, notice Jesus said, if I honor myself, it's nothing. Back in our text in Hebrews, if Jesus would have glorified himself in his own appointing, he would have been nothing. Yet we see this great mystery about Jesus Christ who came to this earth in the incarnation, was fully man and fully God, never ceased to be God, and yet he says, I did not glorify myself. The question is not, is Jesus worthy of glory? The question is not whether or not should we glorify that, but yet Jesus says, I did not glorify myself, specifically with reference to the priestly call or this proper call to this priestly office. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6 goes on to say, Thou art my son, as today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to deal with Melchizedek in much greater detail when we get to chapter 7. But for, the, for our study this morning, I just want us to understand that this office of Melchizedek, uh, of a high priest, and there's a comparison happening between the high priesthood of Aaron and the high priest of Melchizedek. But what I want us to see here from this particular chapter in this verse is that in many ways, Jesus himself was much like Aaron. He was much like Melchizedek. Yet there were limitations to what these high priests could do. 
We have already learned that these priests were men of the flesh. They understood sin. They understood what it was to uh, deal with infirmity. They were chosen to be high priests. Uh, They were intercessors between God and man. They stood in between. They did offer blood sacrifices. So we're seeing the similarities between what Jesus did. But there are also important ways in which they could not represent Christ and how the priesthood of Christ could not be typified or given to us as a type. There was not one single high priest in the Old Testament. There were many. Jesus Christ is declared to be the one great high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament, their priesthood was always temporary. They did not serve forever. His is eternal. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now listen to this, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now again, we'll deal with Melchizedek more when we get to chapter 7 in detail, but you'll notice that this reference to Melchizedek, his priesthood was different. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is making reference to. The Old Testament priesthood, it was temporary. They offered many sacrifices. Jesus Christ, when he offered his sacrifice, he only gave one sacrifice once for all. That settled it. The other priest offered the blood of something or someone else. And this is important to understand. Hebrews 9.12 tells us that Jesus Christ gave his own blood. It was not the blood of bulls. It was not the blood of goats. It was not the blood of a lamb. Hebrews 9.12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. In Hebrews 9, it goes on and says that the blood of goats and ashes and sprinkling and unclean, if that would have been, if that was cleansing at the moment, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot. Jesus' priesthood was, of course, different, but there were some similarities. Also understand that the Old Testament priests, their sacrifices never fully put away sin. They always had to come back again. There always had to be another sacrifice. Folks, I can announce to you today wholeheartedly with complete confidence, and I know many of you already know this, there is no other sacrifice. Jesus Christ, when he comes again, he is not coming to shed his blood again. He's not coming to die on a cross. He's not coming to be mocked and ridiculed and spit upon and, and, and thorns placed on his head. He's not coming to be scourged. He's coming to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is not coming again in any other manner than that. And you and I look forward to that. But in the meantime, Jesus there at the right hand of the Father acts as our intercessor. We can never say this enough. We can never talk about his intercession too many times because without his intercession, our sin would never be fully put away. The Old Testament priests, the high priests, their work was never finished. Jesus Christ's work 
was complete. As was referenced in our study this morning, in John 17, verse number 4, Jesus makes mention of this completed work. He says this, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now notice this prayer. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. You can see the connection how that Jesus always did the will of the Father. Even in his high priestly prayer, he says, Father, glorify me. He doesn't say, I take the glory for myself. He says, Father, you glorify me with the glory that I had before. So we see very clearly, not only the call, the proper call this priestly office, the nature of the call, but thirdly, we see the required qualifications for the priestly work. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What were the required qualifications? Verse 7 makes reference of the days of his flesh. The days of his flesh. Jesus Christ took on this robe of human flesh as that representative Isaiah 53 tells us that he was numbered and identified with transgressors, yet without sin. In other words, he became one of us without being us as far as sin goes. He offered unto the Father, that's what this reference is, he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying. Now, supplications are prayers when there is a sense of temptation. The offered up prayers is intercession. That means there was a sense of need. And the crying and tears unto him that was able to save him, this is the identifying of where the relief is coming from. So we see that in the days of Jesus Christ's earthly, fleshly work, he was making supplications unto the Father. These were what's referred to as effectual prayers. When he prayed for his people, when he prayed unto God, his prayers were effectual. They were being heard. It shows the actual sorrow. And folks, I don't think we give this enough attention. The supplications, the prayers, and the strong crying, and the tears were being made on behalf of the weight of our own sorrow and the sin that was being put upon Him. He was not crying for His own sin. He was not making supplication for his own sin. He was making intercession for the needs of the people he would call his own. What a glorious picture that is. That Jesus Christ in his flesh was heard by the Father. The Father delivered Christ from the power of death. We are delivered in Christ that the Bible tells us that he that believes on him shall never die. Not just have an acquaintance with Christ, but he who believes on him shall never die. Now verses 8 through 9 deal with a very peculiar part of Christ's requirement to be this great high priest. 
Notice it says in verse number 8, Though he were a son, yet he yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Though Christ is the Son of God, he was not going to be exempt from suffering. If he was going to redeem his people, he would not be exempt from suffering. Now, there are many people who falsely say, and I want to be very careful about how I say this, they do not want to give you the wrong impression, who say this, I wish Jesus would not suffer, have not suffered the way that he did. Some have taken even a, a, a more concerning turn by saying, not only do I wish he would not have suffered, I wish he would not have died. But you realize that the suffering was a requirement and the death was a requirement in order for the atoning work of Jesus Christ to be completed. Now, I understand that. And again, I've mentioned this a number of times, a number of months ago, when you watch a dramatic presentation, and again, I have, I have very strong feelings about this, and we can talk about this later, about why I feel this way. I, I, I think it borders on the very line of, 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 a, of a real strong theological problem when you try to demonstrate in picture or in movie or in whatever it is, the death of Christ and his suffering. Because what you find yourself doing, and again, please hear me out, you find yourself in natural humanity immediately running to the suffering part and saying, I wish he would not have endured that. I wish he would not have died. The Bible gives us all the description we need of what Jesus Christ endured. If you read Isaiah 52... It tells us that his visage was marred. He was beaten beyond recognition. He suffered unfathomable things. But there's no way we can possibly represent it as to what Jesus Christ really was enduring. The son was learning obedience. Chew on that today. Chew on what it means that he as though he was a son, he learned obedience. What was he obedient unto? He was obedient unto death. It wasn't that Jesus was a rebel. It wasn't that Jesus was thinking about not going through the atoning sacrifice. Jesus was not on the cross one time thinking, I think I'll come down from this cross. I think I'm going to go back on what was already determined for the foundation of the world. I'm not going through with this. That's not what at the heart is here. It's the qualifications of this great high priest. He had to suffer and he had to die. He learned obedience. Romans 8.32 tells us about this very thing. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Notice the connection there. If, if God did not spare his own son and yet he delivered him up, how much more freely shall he give us all things? None of the children of God are exempt from suffering. Jesus himself in John 16, verse 33, makes reference to this, that none that are his are going to be free or exempt from suffering. 
John 16, 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation. Jesus Christ had to suffer. Though he was the Son of God, he could not execute a perfect righteousness to the full extent that the righteousness and the holiness of God commanded. Jesus Suffering was a perfect suffering. Luke 24 tells us about this suffering being perfect. Remember, Jesus is doing all of this and he's not glorifying himself. Don't don't lose sight of the overarching thought here. Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus is appearing before the ten disciples. And it says, and he says unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Watch, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endowed with power from on high. Uh, we cannot expect a life with no suffering, but Jesus Christ could not complete a perfect sacrifice without perfect suffering. What does perfect suffering mean? It means that Christ not only had to be perfect, obedient actively, but also passively. He had to become perfect, the author of a perfect eternal salvation, which means he had to be perfect in what he did and even in his active and in passive obedience. This is what gives us the perfect righteousness that goes before a holy God. This is the only righteousness that will stand and be accepted before a holy God. It brings us to beautiful passages and verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, which many of us uh, might be able to quote from memory. It's one one of the verses that helps me every time I think about it. For He hath made Him, that's Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It was needful. This perfect righteousness was delivered by a perfect great high priest. Let's go back to Hebrews 5 and let's look at our final heading, the peculiar order of the priesthood. Now, the priesthood of Christ is peculiar in the order because it was not after the order of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. Again, we'll deal with that in great detail later. But verse 10 says that he was called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Now, many times Hebrews 5 is taken um, out of its immediate context. A lot of times you'll hear a message preached on Hebrews 5 that begins with verse number 11 and talks about this, you are in need of 
you're in need of, of milk and not use of strong meat, and it's used to apply you're just not good Bible students and you need to do a better job being a Bible student. I understand the connection, but what's the immediate context? He writes about the, the being called of God after the order of Melchizedek, and then the first two words are what? Of whom? He's talking about the mystery of Melchizedek. And that he's getting ready to write to the Hebrews and say, of Melchizedek, you should be more familiar with the teaching of what Christ after the order of Melchizedek really is. Not just random Bible truth, but contextually speaking, he said, of whom we have many things to say. We have many things to say about Melchizedek. We have many things to say how that Christ is of the order of Melchizedek and not of Aaron. And then he puts the indictment there which says, for when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. This is really kind of a stinging indictment saying, you Hebrews should know more about how Jesus Christ, your great high priest, is out of the order of Melchizedek. That's the immediate context. Now, this writer has many things to say, he says, about this mysterious person called Melchizedek. When we get to Hebrews 7, we're going to kind of unfold the mystery, but that's what he's talking about. What does he mean? What was Melchizedek? He was a type of Christ. And because he was a type of Christ, the writer of Hebrews is saying, I have many things to say regarding the priesthood of Christ that are difficult to explain and they're difficult to understand. But then he gives an even stronger indictment of why they can't understand. He says, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles, the oracles of God, and, become, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of a full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What is the indictment? The indictment against the Hebrews is that they had grown indifferent to knowing this truth. Now folks, let me just say by way of application, there are truths of the Bible that we sometimes just become indifferent to. And we say, I just don't understand it. I'm not comprehending it. So we begin to say, I can just do without it. I don't have to know much more about it. And the reality is, is as the writer was talking about this, he's telling them, you're not really interested in spiritual truth. You're, you're not keen on understanding these things. He reminds them, for when, for the time you ought to be teachers, what's he telling them? He's telling them, you have been redeemed. You've heard the gospel. You're understanding principles of the kingdom of God, and you've been saved enough, long enough to be a teacher. And by the way, scripturally, a person who is a novice shouldn't be a teacher. He's telling them you should be at a place where you're a teacher of these truths. Yet, you still need someone to teach you over and over again, even some of the simplest of gospel truths. He tells them, you're not ready for strong meat. You're still babes, and you still need the milk of God's word. Now remember, if you just take this out of context, and you don't talk about Melchizedek, you take this out of the chapter of chapter 5, of the priesthood of Christ, this could go all sorts of directions. 
This could, go, this could literally go off onto a topical sermon and really go off the rails. He's talking about the understanding of the truth of how Melchizedek and how Jesus Christ is a type of Melchizedek. That's why he's going to use a whole chapter to explain it when he gets to Hebrews 7. And by the way, pray for me when we get there. Some of it is difficult. Some of it is really hard to grasp. Now what we read in Hebrews 7, we do know there were some things that we can identify with. Remember it said about Melchizedek, without father and without mother. Right? He didn't have an earthly, he didn't have a, a tetelate earthly father, earthly mother. Melchizedek had said about that. Christ didn't either. Without descent, without neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. It's a great mystery. But what the writer is doing in Hebrews 5 is he is reproving the Hebrews that they have not gone forward in their knowledge which is allowing them to look into some of the more depth, mysterious teachings and workings of God. The mysterious part to them was that Christ called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, was a mysterious truth that they were not understanding. They weren't getting it. There are babes in Christ. Notice he says, that you, that you one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful. They're unskillful. They might have, they might have been uh, instructed, but they were not able to teach. And he says clearly, you're unskillful in the word of righteous, for he's a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use, notice that, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. God is not neglecting those who are unskillful. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying only the people of strong meat I'm interested in. He just simply tells them that you are not in a place where you really should be and that you're still a babe. The Lord certainly does intend for us to grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord. We are to become mature believers who are constantly, diligently seeking after the deep truths of Scripture. Folks, that's why it is so important to me personally. And again, I'll just say this for what it is. It's so important for you to understand Scripture for yourself, for you to go home and to study to show yourself approved, allow the Spirit to teach you. It is not just me standing up here and feeding you everything. You have got to feed yourself also. And you've got to be sure that you're being taught properly. And you've got to be sure that you're being fed. And that's why we go through the Bible the way we do. That's why we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I don't want us to miss anything. And I don't want us to ever get to a place where I made up a doctrine. I came with a topic and I gave you a couple of verses to support my topic. I want you to understand what they really had in mind here, what the writer did. Mature believers are those who can enter into these great mysteries of the gospel and are able to digest the strong meat of the word. Now remember, as, as the writer was writing all these things, don't lose sight of these headings and these things that he was talking about. These peculiar orders, these peculiar headings that affected Christ only. Now remember, all of these things 
All of the Old Testament priests all had their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If you don't get anything else today, I want you to get that. Everything they were doing was perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Even when there were times when that Old Testament priest was coming in all of his own sin, Jesus Christ was the perfect fulfillment of what the law required. Christ did not glorify himself by assuming the office of high priest in an uncalled manner. He didn't just assume it because he could. He followed the appointment of the Father. He received that office of great high priest from the Father who declared Him to be, Thou art my Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father, scripturally it says, that Christ will set apart and set above all principalities and all powers. His name is above every name. His name is not only above every name in this world, but His name is above every name of the world that is to come. There is no greater name than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the name above all names. And without Him as our great high priest, we would be people most hopeless and miserable. I hope we understand that when we see these pictures and we see these principles of Christ as the high priest, we don't take them lightly. And you might even say today, I am, I, this, is, this has been an area in my life and my personal study. Uh, maybe I don't know as much about this priesthood and why this is important. Make it a diligent part of your study. Study to show yourself. Study to show yourself approved. And look into these great truths and allow the Holy Spirit to give you discernment and wisdom in these matters. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning and we thank you, Lord, for this great chapter of Scripture. And Father, there are many other things that we could say, but your word has been so clear this morning. It's been so concise. And Father, I pray that as the Spirit accompanies and empowers these words, because without power, they are nothing more than words and letters on a page. But may the Holy Spirit make these words effectual today. And may the Word of God, as your Word promises, never return void. And Father, most of all, we pray for that individual or individuals today who yet still need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, how we pray that their eyes would be open to see the truth, their ears would be unstopped to hear, and they would in this very moment, this very day, this hour, be made willing to believe. Lord, we know that all things come from you, including salvation. And we know that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. And may we rest in that truth today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. If you would, let's...